They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome, and welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, my co-host and wife, Caitlin, and I will read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. Also, a warning. This episode's book is about the exploits of a serial killer. We will be discussing fictional and real violence and murder, and it could get gross. This month, we read The Butcher and the Wren by Elena Urquhart, a crime thriller about a vicious serial killer and the medical examiner following his trail of bodies. Now take out your red pens, because we have a couple of notes. Elena Urquhart is the co-host of the chart-topping show Morbid, a true crime podcast. The Butcher and the Wren is her debut novel, which utilizes both her true crime knowledge as well as her expertise as an autopsy technician. She's received degrees in criminal justice, psychology, and biology. In addition to Morbid, she hosts the ParCast original show Crime Countdown, and a horror movie podcast called Scream. As of this recording, she has also announced a new Wondery program the rewatcher Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She and her co-host Elena are building a weirdo empire, and Elena's next stop is New Orleans. In the bayou surrounding New Orleans, serial killer Jeremy is hunting his latest victim, a pre-med student named Emily. For several months, Jeremy has been disguising himself under the false identity Cal to stalk Emily at school as he plots to kidnap her and bring her into his own personal hunting ground. Meanwhile, medical examiner Wren has just been called to a crime scene. Police have found a body covered in swamp water, one of many that have been popping up around New Orleans for the last few months. Wren is starting to see a pattern and worries there may be a serial killer in the city. Some recent bodies have even had strange clues left behind. This body has a scrap of distinctive paper left with the body, which Wren and lead detective John Leroux will eventually connect to a musical festival in town. Meanwhile, back in the dark pit that is Jeremy's world, Jeremy kidnaps Emily from school, as well as two other victims, Matt and Katie, from a bar, and releases them all into the acres of swampland around his home to play most dangerous game. He kills Matt and Katie quickly, having taken in them mostly to add to Emily's terror, then hunts her down and attempts to paralyze her with a knife to the spine. He then leaves her unable to move in the middle of the swamp for several hours, enjoying the idea of her broken and helpless in his backyard, wondering what will come next. At the music festival, Wren, Detective Leroux, and Leroux's partner, Dr. Will Broussard, are body hunting. They believe that scrap of flyer left behind is a clue that another body will be dumped here. They couldn't be more correct. After only a short search, Wren smells the stinky smell of human decomposition and crawls under a stage to find a new dead body, along with a new clue. The clue is nice and straightforward. A cemetery map and a timer. The message is clear. I've buried something here, and you have this long to find it. Frantically, the crew rush to the cemetery and get digging, unearthing a coffin with a woman inside. She's alive, but only just, and her spine has been severed. If she survives, she'll be paralyzed. Unfortunately, she doesn't survive the night. It turns out she had large amounts of hemlock in her system, 
an unusual poison that Ren has only seen once before in her career. Jeremy is frustrated that his victim was found alive. He planned for her to be dead when they got to her, and they were all going to be so sad and he would laugh. Mwahahaha! Since he's angry, he decides to go kill another woman. But because he's acting rashly, he bungles it up and ends up leaving a live victim in the hands of some concerned citizens. The survivor is able to give the police his first name, because he gave her his real name, like a dumbass. <laughs> Ren puts together the first name Jeremy from the survivor, with the name Jeremy Calvin, the son of the only other hemlock victim Ren ever autopsied. Running with that theory, several other puzzle pieces are connected for the police to identify their suspect and plan to bring him in. Normally at this point, I would describe the big finale of Ren and Jeremy and the police all coming to a head, but I truly believe that the next several chapters of Twists and Turns are the most enjoyable part of the book, and if you haven't read it yet, I'm urging you to go read it to get the full experience of the chapters I am about to describe. Ren realizes, through a series of clues, that she has met Jeremy before. She knew him as Cal, the man who kidnapped, hunted, and stabbed her years ago, when she was still called Emily. Much of the events we saw with Jeremy at the beginning of the book were actually happening years ago, not the same week as the events of Ren's story. Ren was one of his first victims, and the only way to get away and the only one to get away. Ever since, Jeremy's main goal has been to get Emily to notice him, to get revenge on her for foiling him all those years ago. Now, Ren is moments away from the police finally coming face to face with the man who attacked her, after she has personally dissected so many of his victims, uncovering their stories. But she realizes that not only does she now know who he is, he knows who she is. Jeremy knows the police are closing in, and he is not planning to go quietly. He begins his master plan by breaking into Ren's home while she and her husband sleep, stealing a ring from her bedside table. He proceeds to set up his home in exactly the manner he wants the police to find it, and goes to hide in the swamp with weapons. When Ren and the police arrive, Jeremy has laid a trap for them, luring them into the swamp, firing on the police, intentionally targeting those closest to Ren so he can see and be seen by her. He takes a shot from Detective Broussard but still manages to escape into the wilderness. The story ends with our final girl, Ren, riding in an ambulance, delivering the news to an injured Detective Leroux that Jeremy escaped. What a ride. We're going to pause for a brief ad break. Welcome back. Now that we've covered the bones, flesh, and blood of this story, let's go over our notes, starting with our initial thoughts. So we are actually huge fans of Morbid, a true crime podcast. We are. Like many of their listeners, we discovered them back during the pandemic in 2020 and 2021 when we had COVID and we had nothing to do but lay in bed. And we listened to Morbid for two weeks. <laughs> we listened to over a hundred episodes over the course of 10 days. And we were hooked. So hooked. You guys need to understand that the dynamic between Ash and Elena 
is mwah, chef's kiss, dynamite. Yeah, We love the podcast, and they're actually the ones who inspired us to start our own podcast. Yeah, um, we were hoping to have a similar chemistry, a similar vibe to them when this all began. You know, not trying to copy them per se, but like we hoped, you know, if there was anyone we wanted to emulate, if there was anyone we wanted people to compare us to, it'd or to be them. aspire to be. Yes, to aspire to be. And choosing to do this book for the podcast is very much a please notice me senpai moment. <laughs> I was going to call it an homage, but... <laughs> for me, it's a notice me senpai moment. If Elena Urquhart were to hear this episode and shout it out on her podcast or her Instagram or something like that, I would die. Don't die, please. <laughs> I'd come back, but I'd get better. <laughs> As one often does. <laughs> but temporarily deceased. Yeah, so. I mean, I think it should be noted that whatever we say about this book, we are enormous fans. <laughs> so none of this is going to come from a bad place. Or even from an overly generous place. <laughs> yeah. And that is one thing. We are going to be fair to this book. We are going to be fair to this book. But just know that we did go into this book planning to love it mm -hmm. and we did go into this book with the understanding of this is this is morbid this is elena's book like we were ready we pre-ordered this book months in advance <laughs> we were ready for this book mm -hmm. so anything negative we might say about this book elena please don't hate me i love you <laughs> <laughs> we're not haters even if we hate a book, we're not haters. We give honest critiques. It's what yes. we do. Yes. So let's start with what worked. Yes. So first of all, the pacing of this book is stellar. Mm -hmm. um, there's, It's very, very fast paced. Each chapter, it goes like a Ren chapter, a Jeremy chapter, a Ren chapter, a Jeremy chapter. And they're all quick, which I love because sometimes you read some of those books that have insanely long chapters. Yeah, and especially for a thriller, a thriller needs to be fast-paced. Yeah. And also, especially when you're juggling two points of view, you want it to bounce between the two quickly. Mm -hmm. Because if you're dealing with a book where you have two points of view, but maybe you're only in one point of view 10% of the time, and the other point of view 90% of the time, like we saw with Remarkably Bright Creatures, mm -hmm. where the octopus would get like a page every 100 pages or something. We didn't like that. In this, it feels like there's, even though clearly one of these characters is the hero and the other is the villain, they still get equal time. And I enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. Elena's true crime experience really shines through for this novel especially her references to other killers. And I feel like knowing her as well as we feel like we do through listening to the podcast, we could see not only her expertise on these killers shine through, but also her distaste for them. Oh yeah, because, you know, sometimes you read a thriller that goes through the eyes of the killer, through the eyes of the villain, and you kind of feel like the writer's just sucking the villain's dick the whole time. <laughs> not the same. In the case of Jeremy, like, he's really written to be just the most despicable creature. And there are so many things that he does that you're like, 
oh, he does this just like that person does. He does this just like that person did. But he doesn't feel like a ripoff of any particular killer. And with everyone, you can feel that he thinks he's the goddamn smartest, strongest, toughest, coolest guy that ever lived. And the whole world ought to fear him. But Elena is clearly like, guys, this man sucks. Mm-hmm. Like, you know that if she was doing a podcast episode on him, she'd be like, and then this trash Jeremy shows up. <laughs> yeah, I always found, like, their vibes to be kind of special for the Morbid Podcast about how, you know, we'd hear all these stories about it here, serial killer's grand endeavors and how many people they killed and how horrifying it is. And true crime as a genre typically, like, takes it in a certain way of where they really play up the fear and the intelligence of the killers. Yeah. But Ash always just dissed on them and called them losers, which was so refreshing. Yeah. And I felt that come through in this novel. Yeah, I like when Ash and Elena give them mean nicknames. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even with her favorites, you know, I say favorites, like, with quotes around it, but, like, you know, Ted Bundy is, you know, her favorite killer but not in the way that some people are where they're like oh my god I love Ted Bundy I want to marry Ted Bundy I could have fixed Ted Bundy if I'd been Ted Bundy's mom he would have turned out better like Ted Bundy's her favorite in the sense of like how did this happen I want to know everything about this case I do know everything about this case and also those of you who want to marry Ted Bundy what is wrong with you (laughs) I need to understand. (laughs) And I feel the same way about a lot of true crime, so... But we're getting off topic. Back to the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the point is, Jeremy, throughout all of his endeavors and every step he takes, he does feel like a loser. (laughs) Yeah, he just, he feels like the worst, and every time he does something awful, you're like, oh, you sick bastard. And every time he messes up, you're like, yes! Ha! Take that, you son of a bitch! (laughs) And then, on the contrast, the character of Ren. Mm -hmm. She's a great, like, female protagonist. She's a great final girl. She is a bit of a self-insert character. I can see the Elena in her. (laughs) But... If you're not a fan of Morbid, if you don't know Elena, you're not going to sit there going, this is a Mary Sue. Because she's not overpowered or anything like that. She doesn't have magic powers or, you know, some kind of weird insight to be able to, you know, understand things that she shouldn't be able to understand or something like that. She's just a good character Mm -hmm. with, like, a good balance of intelligence, bravery, trauma. <laughs> yeah, she feels very three-dimensional. She feels very real, not over the top. Yeah. You know, she's got her friends, she's got her husband, she's got her work. You know, she doesn't fall into any of those typical tropes of like, you know, because I'm a woman working in crime, I therefore can't have a life or anything like that. She's dedicated to her job. There's never any of those kind of pitfalls that you might fall into writing a female in thriller that I see at least because I read a lot of thriller mm-hmm. of things like you know she she was always being bothered by the cops who thought she was too pretty to do this job or things like that like she's she's never underestimated by her male co-workers she runs her medical lab clearly and concisely 
she has her traumatic backstory, but it doesn't, like, run her life. Mm-hmm. It just becomes relevant when it becomes relevant. Like, I I liked all of that about her. She felt like a human and not just, here's a bundle of traits in a woman's suit. Yeah, and while we're talking about Rin, I wanted to quickly get to the twist. Yes. The timeline twist, because the way the story is set up, you think that... Emily is the victim that they're chasing for about the first half of the book. Yeah. And then you find out that there's a different timeline going on in Emily's Rin, and that was my favorite part of the story. Yeah, and we learned that the reason she became a medical examiner is because of what happened to her. Mm-hmm. Because after she escaped, they never found the guy that caught that attacked her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so she wanted to help solve other crimes and things like that, and it's like you learn all this stuff about her, but you don't learn about it until the moment that she realizes they're chasing the same guy. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like she's living in the past. Yeah. And it really was just such a good twist. It was. It worked so well. I loved it. You know, and that's why I had to put that extra warning in the summary, being like, guys, seriously, go read the book first. Because usually we don't care about spoiling things for you guys. We'll be like, ah, yeah, if you're here, you know you're gonna get a spoiler. This one, like, I hope you read it first. (laughs) You know, sometimes there's just those twists that they make the story. Exactly. Sometimes there are just those twists that you need to not know what's gonna happen. Let's get to the setting. I feel like you're qualified to speak on that. Okay, yeah. I liked the New Orleans setting because we get to see a lot of different aspects of New Orleans. We get to see kind of like the touristy side with Bourbon Street. We get to see where she lives over in, you know, the suburban areas. And we get to see where Jeremy lives out in the swamps that surround New Orleans. And it's all very nice and it all feels very Louisiana. For those of you who don't know, I was born in Louisiana. I spent most of my summers and holidays growing up there. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little familiar. (laughs) And it feels, it feels accurate because sometimes it feels like, sometimes when books are set in Louisiana or in New Orleans, it feels like they go too hard. You know, it's just like whenever things are set in Paris and everything is a shot of the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) Sometimes things set in New Orleans just go a little too hard. (laughs) But this felt pretty decent, you know, the French names, you know, Detectives Leroux and Broussard, a lot of those down there, things like that. It felt right. Now, there are some things about it that did not feel right, and we will get into that in the next section, because I do have gripes. But on a whole, I liked that it felt authentically New Orleans without being like, come on down for some gumbo with the Mardi Gras, dee 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 dee. It was just enough. It wasn't over the top. It just felt like nicely seasoned. Yes. Lastly, the scene where the killer breaks into her house was so genuinely scary and so well done. Yeah, that was the most tense scene I've ever read. I literally made Caitlin get out of bed and go check the locks. <laughs> I was scared. Because they're they're asleep in their bed and he goes into their house. He listens to them sleep for a while. Yeah, he watches them for hours, 
listens to them sleep, he sneaks into their house, he walks around, he touches their stuff, and they just sleep through the whole thing. He's in their room, he's watching them sleep. It's terrifying. And it's, it's especially scary because having, again, going back to Morbid, having listened to enough Morbid, we know that Elena is taking this directly from real crime cases that happened. So this isn't a situation where you're like, oh yeah, but that could never happen in real life. It's like, no, no, no. She took that directly from at least four other cases where that did happen in real life. Mm-hmm. And that's terrifying. I don't like it. <laughs> I like it, but I don't like it. Yeah, we did. We loved reading it. <laughs> loved reading it. Don't like thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I will never feel safe again. <laughs> okay, I think that's all of our positives. That's everything that worked. So, let's take out our red pins and let's edit. Yes. So, I will go back to the New Orleans thing real quick. Yeah, start there. Because this book is 100% supposed to take place in summer. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about the heat, the humidity, the cicadas, all kinds of things like that. Like, this is clearly supposed to take place in the dead of summer. But one of the primary, like, plot points happens at the music festival, which, do not get me wrong, you can always find a jazz festival happening somewhere in Erin, Louisiana. But they make a point of saying that it is a prelude to Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is in February. Mm-hmm. So the idea that we are having a prelude to Mardi Gras jazz festival in what is definitely supposed to be sometime between May and August feels very weird to me. It's a very early prelude. (laughs) It's a very early prelude. And there's a couple of other little moments like that where she just kind of slipped out of it. Like, they, uh, at one point, Ren refers to the counties. You know, they have to go across county lines. Louisiana does not have counties. They have parishes. They are the only state that still has parishes instead of counties as part of their French Catholic history. So being a native Louisianian, she wouldn't say, I need to go over to whatever county. She'd say, I need to go over to that parish. And then also, there's a very specific thing where they talk about a victim being found on Bayou Torture Road near Elmwood Park. And at first I didn't think much of that, but I was curious. I was like, is Bayou Torture Road a real place? Because I knew Elmwood Park was a real place. I also knew it wasn't that close to New Orleans, but it's also established that he lives outside of New Orleans and they drove for a while. So I was like, you know, maybe he took her up to Elmwood Park and he took her kind of away. And I looked up and Bayou Torture Road is a real place, but it is nowhere near Elmwood Park or New Orleans. If you look at a map of Louisiana, there's kind of a triangle. New Orleans is at the bottom of that triangle. And then you can go northeast about a few hours to Bussard or Alexandria, which is west of Baton Rouge. And that is where you'll find Bayou Torture Road and Bayou Torture River. Mm -hmm. Or you can go east of Baton Rouge to Elmwood Park. Either way, you're going more than an hour north of New Orleans. But the difference is whether you're going east or west. 
and I just thought it was kind of a weird detail because she clearly did so much research and then she was like, I'm just gonna take that road, that river, and move it over here. And it was just a little weird for me. It was like, why couldn't he have just been over there? Just scoot it west. Just don't, don't use Elmwood Park. Just use somewhere else. There's a lot of places. And it was just weird to me. Maybe she just, maybe she didn't know Elmwood Park was a real place. Maybe she was just pulling a random idea out of her mind of like, you know, uh, park, park, uh, Elm, Elmwood Park, you know, whatever. But it was, it was a weird note for me because I was like, those places aren't close to each other. And again, it's not gonna bother anyone who didn't look at a freaking map of Louisiana to check, but it bothered me. It must have been some kind of mistake, but there was a lot of effort put into other aspects of the setting, so it was a little odd. <laughs> Overall, not a big deal, but something worth noting. <laughs> yeah. But like, it's these tiny little things that, again, they're not gonna bother anyone but me. Mm -hmm. But they bothered me. There's really only a few other, like, eh notes. Yeah, we have a few other nitpicks. <laughs> um, one of them is just there are a few first-time writer tropes mm -hmm. that this book does fall into. One of the big ones being the first time we see Jeremy, he's getting ready in front of a mirror. That's a very, like, first-time writer thing. You know, and there are some writers that do it every single book. <laughs> um... I mean, let's just say we've been introduced to a lot of characters in mirrors over the years. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that, you know, it feels it feels done, and it's kind of like, okay, so we're gonna get a character getting ready in front of a mirror, and this is how we show that, one, the character is an isolated person, because this means we're not gonna have them interact with another person anytime soon to be able to get any other kind of description about them. And two, it's an easy way to get an introduction to a character's physical appearance. And it's just, it's kind of basic. Yeah, it's not necessarily a mistake, and it's not even a big deal, but it's something we've seen before that we might recommend doing something another way to keep it fresh. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest you do this again in your next book is what I'm saying. <laughs> and there are a couple of other things like that, like um, Jeremy plays music while he is hunting people, which that alone, like, whatever. But the thing is, Elena makes a point of telling us every song he plays. And while some of the songs are kind of spooky, some of them are clearly just songs that Elena really liked and wanted to put in the book, like Suffragette City by David Bowie. I'm sorry, but that's not a scary song. Mm -hmm. there, is, there is nothing that can make our character getting chased through the forest less terrifying than imagining David Bowie. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am! I see what you're saying. It didn't quite bother me, necessarily, but I know other writers would recommend not having a full playlist in your novel. Yeah, because I definitely could go on Spotify and make Jeremy's Hunting playlist. Mm -hmm. And it would be weird. It almost feels like it was for a movie adaptation whenever this happens. Yeah. Yeah, it almost feels like the author is planning 
And when they cast the movie, in this scene, this song will play in the background. You know, kind of like how every space movie has to have the necessary Starman in the background. Yeah. She was planning for that. <laughs> she was planning ahead for that. I think maybe the issue with using a lot of songs in your work is that you rely on the reader to know all of the songs. Yeah. And I certainly didn't, but I still would have liked to not have to look them up to understand the vibes that we were going for. <laughs> mm -hmm. Especially when you do look them up and the vibe is, this is a poppy 80s dance hit. And I don't mind the tonal dissonance of it. I, I do appreciate a good tonal dissonance. <laughs> But it can get- it got confusing to me. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes the songs were creepy songs. Sometimes it was like, Don't Fear the Reaper. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, that's a song I'd play if I was hunting someone in the woods. Not that I would hunt someone in the woods, but you know what I mean. Like, that's a song that's like, I am death, I am coming for you. And then you have Bowie. And it's like, that's a song that I want to sing while I'm putting on my makeup before going out for a night. Mm -hmm. That's not a song that I want to- play while I'm, you know, loading up my gun to go play the most dangerous game, hunting people in the woods. It just, it was a weird, it was a weird balance. Mm -hmm. It was unbalanced, that's the thing. Yeah. And I think what we're getting at is, like, it feels a little bit like a debut. It does. Which you hate to say because some debuts are really fantastic. Mm -hmm. And this is a good debut. It is. It really is. But there are just, like, a few places where maybe a more experienced writer would have gone farther. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can see that as well early on in some of her true crime statistics coming through. Because mm -hmm. we talked about, you know, how Elena's true crime knowledge really shines through, but that is a detriment at some points very early on in the book, because there will be moments where she'll just suddenly make an aside and be like, this is similar to how Israel Keys kill kids all over America and he killed this many people and whatever and it's like oh whoa whoa we're going to textbook mode for a moment and it's only ever for a paragraph or two at a time but it takes away from the story for a moment it's like oh we're in an episode of Morbid now and then we go back to the story and it never comes back and it's clearly just to show that either Jeremy or Ren whichever one is reflecting at the moment has knowledge of other serial killers because Jeremy idolizes them and wishes to best them, and Ren obviously needs to know about them for her job. But in those first couple chapters when we just start throwing out like, you know, oh, Jeremy uses this arm sling trick because Ted Bundy used this arm sling trick, or something like that, it's like, okay, we didn't need to know that. Like, if we know that about Ted Bundy already, then it's like, oh, he's doing the get her from behind in the car thing the same way Ted Bundy did. But if we don't know that, we're not missing anything by not knowing that. And we're not gaining anything by you saying, he learned this method from reading about Ted Bundy. <laughs> Who would do this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. And I think there were points for me when I was reading from Jeremy's perspective, and I kind of felt like he was less his own character and more an amalgamation of other serial killers. Yes. And kind of like we were... We were actively prevented from liking or idolizing him, which I do respect, but at the same time I felt like there was a hesitation there that might have prevented him from becoming his own character. Yeah. And for that character to be really strong and to shine, because we, we were clearly not supposed to like him, and that kind of felt like it was 
I don't know, maybe in the way? What do you think? I don't think it was in the way that we were clearly not supposed to like him, but I do think the constant references to how he was like other serial killers then made, primed me to think later on how other things he was doing were similar to other killers, which then did, like you said, made it difficult to think of him as his own person. It just made me think of, okay, he's a little bit Bundy, he's a little bit BTK, he's a little bit Israel Keys. I felt like she held back on giving him his own personality just to guarantee that there's no way we would like or identify with him. Exactly. Which, like, I appreciate that she doesn't want us to idolize the killer. Yeah, me too. But at the same time... He still needs to be his own person with his own motives. And I didn't feel like I understood what his motive for killing was. That was definitely the biggest thing for me. I didn't understand what his motive was. Because one thing we learn is that sometime between when he was killing Emily, or when he was killing Matt and Katie and hunting Emily and all that stuff, and he'd killed other people before then, and when he starts the second round of killings that we see Ren investigating, he kills his mother Mm -hmm. in there. And the house he's using to do these killings is his parents' house. But we never get any insight onto why he killed his mother. And he clearly has, like, a variety of M.O. Because he kills men and women, though he seems to prefer women. He kills in a variety of different ways. Because he stabs and he shoots and he drugs. Sometimes he tortures, sometimes he kills in one night. And it's like, it kind of keeps us from pinning down any aspect of his psychology Mm -hmm. and we don't get any real backstory on him I would have liked to know a little bit more about Jeremy and why he does what he does in his own mind is he a mission killer is he a thrill killer what got him to this point because even though I'm not supposed to like him I'd like to feel like he's real. I want to understand him. Exactly. Right now he feels like a boogeyman. Mm -hmm. He feels like, okay, let's take the killing your mom of Ed Kemper and mix it with a little bit of the attacking co-eds of Ted Bundy. And then we'll throw in the hunting people in the wilderness of that guy from Alaska whose name I can't remember right now, the baker. And, you know... We'll just we'll mix all these people together and then go. Mm-hmm. And it does lead to feeling like he's scary, but he's not real. Mm-hmm. And you want him to be more real. Because it's easier to root for his downfall when he's real. If he's not real, he's Michael Myers. He's Jason. He's Ghostface, and you're not necessarily rooting for his downfall. You're rooting for him to come back in the sequel. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good transition into our last two nitpicks. Uh, the first is that there's a typo on page 230. Do you remember what the typo was? No idea. <laughs> we'll take a look at that for the second edition. <laughs> and more importantly, the ending... I didn't necessarily have a problem with it, but it is divisive. Yeah, the ending is divisive because he gets away. In the end, he gets away. And that was 
divisive to me because it's like, on the one hand, maybe we're priming for a sequel. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's like, we've been hunting him for so long. I wanted him caught. Yeah, I felt like I didn't need a sequel because I didn't feel like his character was strong enough. And I really wanted a satisfying conclusion to this. And him getting away doesn't quite feel satisfying. Exactly. I wanted a moment where he was getting led off in cuffs and he and Ren make eye contact and she sees in his eyes how badly he wanted to kill her, how badly he still wants to kill her, and how angry he is because he is not going to get to. And the sense of fear and relief and anger all welling into one from her because it is finally over. She caught this man who hurt her so long ago, who has been hunting her for so long, and she won. And he's going away, and he's not coming back. Or alternatively, if we're playing up the idea that he's a scrub, I kind of wanted him to die like a scrub from his own hubris. <laughs> that would also be nice. Um, you know, there's a whole part of his escape as he swims across the swamp. Let him get eaten by a fucking alligator. That would be great. You know, have him have him die some horrible, ridiculous, loserish way. Like in the end of I didn't read the book, but in the end of the movie, My Lovely Bones. Or The Lovely Bones, yeah, the when lovely a bones. freaking icicle falls on his head. When the guy yeah, gets distracted by an icicle, falls off a cliff, and then dies buried in snow, kinda like as an homage to the way that he'd hidden the body of the girls he'd killed in the wilderness and in the woods where they wouldn't be found for a long time. It felt like felt like just that felt way. Like, yeah, it felt like irony. It felt like dramatic irony. So I feel like him getting eaten by a gator would have played into that and given me that same satisfaction. Yeah, he's always covering the girls in swamp water, so let him die in a swamp. Mm -hmm. You know, something like that that feels like justice. Instead, he gets away to go off and do this again in another city. And I didn't like that because we're supposed to hate him and not root for him. So to then have him get away, and he's feeling all fucking smug about it. It's like, well shit, no one was rooting for him. Mm-hmm. And that was disappointing. That was disappointing to me. Yeah. I didn't like that. But that is everything. Yeah, final thoughts? Mm-hmm. Uh, you go first. So, all in all, it was a good debut. Falls into a few first-time writer tropes, but don't we all? <laughs> I didn't care for the ending, personally. I would have changed it. But I think it's good. And I'm wondering if that ending could have something to do with the fact that this book is getting an Amazon adaptation. So it needs to be open for a season two. Oh. And if that's the case, I am looking forward to seeing how that goes. So... It's good, and I'm looking forward to Elena's next book. I understand there's going to be something about a man in a closet. Ooh. You think it's going to be this guy again? <laughs> I don't know. All I know is that it's something about a closet man and has something to do with something one of her children told her. But there's a man in her closet. Mm, that's exciting. <laughs> okay, for my final thoughts, I thought this was a, this was a really nice debut. Ooh, I enjoyed it. I flew through it, which is... It's unusual. It's unusual for you to fly through it. I flew through it, which is always a compliment, especially when we're dealing with physical copies, because I do prefer audiobooks. 
They kept me entertained. I really adored the twist, and it had a ton of potential for future books. So I'm very excited to see what Elena will write next. And I give the story four stars, or should I say, I give it four out of five shady creeps. And I'm giving it four out of five killer clues. As always, our ratings are subjective. Give us your notes at Twitter, at Couple of Notes, if you are still on Twitter after what just happened. <laughs> we are considering starting an Instagram account, so hopefully that'll be live by our next episode. And to supply us with red pins, support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash couple of notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet back here after, after the, the next, next chapter. chapter.